get started. Lord, you've been with us during this week. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And as we close out this week, as the Sabbath approaches, Lord, we are very grateful to you. You are a wonderful God. You've given safety in driving, safety in travel. We pray that you will continue to provide that safety as people drive um, in over the um, during today. And we pray, Lord, your blessing to be upon our workshop today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What we have done all week is we've tried to talk about long-term financial planning. We've tried to get rid of the word retirement and instead look more at just financial planning because it's broader than just planning for retirement. May I ask how old you are, sir? 84. 84? Yes. Okay. And I'm 86. 86. You're older than he is. You robbed the cradle, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I did. Okay. Before he even knew what, knew what I was, I was, was going to marry him, before he even knew about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So one of the challenges that I think we have with our children and in our church is dealing with the education of young people and looking at matters of financial planning. And so one of the things that I have tried to do, and Ron can tell me whether you think it's reasonably successful or not, is we've tried to deal with um, helping people of all ages. And we've had some young people. Your, is that your son that's been with you, with us? He's been sitting back there and actually listening most of the time. And so um, we've, we've had some young people here, and we've had some people of your age as well. And so kind of looking at the, at the whole range of financial planning. So I'm going to do some reiteration today. Um, and I, I, it, it seems to me that as we look at financial planning, we need to settle in our minds some things. And one of the things I spent all of Monday talking about was, is long-term financial planning a denial of my hope and belief in the second coming of Jesus? And I've had people tell me that they think it is, that I should not worry in my mind about the future. And they quote what Jesus says. Um, don't worry about you know, the lilies of the field. They don't worry about what they're going to wear and the sparrow, what he's going to eat. And... Yet there are other scriptures that say no. In fact, there are over 2,000 scriptures that deal with financial management and financial planning. So I, I have settled this in my mind, and I hope that you have too, that financial planning is not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you're um, denying your faith um, in, in the second coming of Jesus. Um, I used an illustration on Monday um, my parents went as missionaries to Indonesia in 1947. And they went to Indonesia, and they, um, in Indonesia was not called Indonesia then. It was called the Dutch East Indies. It was fighting for independence from Holland, and at the same time, it had just come out of a brutal occupation of World War II. And Dad came home one day after seeing all this violence around him, and he said to my mom, he said, Merle, we're not going to even go on our first furlough in 1953. And my mom freaked out. She says, what do you mean, Harry? And he says, I, I do not believe that the Lord will allow time to continue. We will be in heaven for our first furlough. And, of course, that's not what happened. And Dad believed with all his heart that Jesus' coming was imminent throughout his whole career. And he died at 92 years of age, still believing that the Lord was going to come. But he was so grateful that even with that belief, 
that he and my mom and his employer had planned faithfully for his retirement. And, and, and I, I've kind of taken my dad's experience as my personal testimony. I can believe and yet I can also plan. And so I've settled that in my mind, and I'm gathering from your reaction that, 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 that you folks, the six of you, have settled that in your mind. It is not inappropriate. Where it becomes inappropriate is when we become, become obsessed with our finances. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about, don't you think, when, when, when he says, don't worry? No, I, we're not talking about worrying, but there are steps that you can take that can help prepare you for the long run that are not obsession steps. And I think that's where you cross the line. The wealth builder models as opposed to a prudent plan. All right? So that's one thing to settle in your mind. Let's talk about another thing. I need to figure out in my own mind what is the relationship between financial well-being and happiness, joy, and satisfaction. Um, and we talked about this the other day. There are an awful lot of people that feel like, Money will buy happiness, and money will buy toys. There's no question. You know, I have toys. I love my toys. I have a nice guitar. It costs money. My wife bought it for me. I am very grateful for it. It's a toy. It brings me happiness. Well, music brings me happiness. Um, and, and so what, what are they, come in, welcome. And so I settle in my mind the relationship between financial well-being and happiness, joy, and satisfaction. Um, one of the things that we talked about was the study done by Princeton that showed that people are desperate without money and they move up through survival up to comfort and then to luxury. And there comes a point in time when their income reaches a certain point and their happiness, satisfaction, joy goes up with that money. Money can provide those things. If you are a single mom and you are in poverty, you are desperate to feed your kids. It wouldn't, I mean, put yourself in that mind. You would be desperate to feed your kids. And you don't have the money to feed your kids. You're not going to be happy. But there comes a point, according to the Princeton study, where there's a tipping point where additional income actually makes you unhappy because of overconsumption. And so you start down the other side. Now, I can read that in the study, and something in the back of my mind keeps saying to me, you know, I'd like to prove that. <laughs> I'd like to try it out and prove it and see. I'd like to get up to that $100,000 income a year level and see if that's really the fact. But the reality is the studies have indicated time after time the tipping point certainly happens. You get down on the other side. And so I need to settle in my own mind because if I don't understand that financial well-being does not necessarily equate to happiness, then I fall victim to the temptations of Satan, which are covetousness, selfishness, and, and, and those kinds of things. Welcome. Glad you all came. All right? So i got to settle that in my mind as well. Then another thing I want to settle in my mind. What are typical pitfalls that I personally am subject to when it comes to money management. And, and I think for each of us, those things are going to be different. For you and me, they probably are somewhat different. All right? I can look at somebody, I showed you the picture of the Camaro that a church member drove in. 
I said, oh, I'd love to have a brand new Camaro. You know, to me, that's a temptation to covet. I coveted that day. I had to have a conversation with the Lord about that when my fellow church member drove in and had a beautiful black Camaro and I'm driving a car that's two decades old. Um, my car is fine, but I became covetous at that moment. All right, so what is your pitfall that you might... Do you want to share with me? Do any of you have something that, that you can see as a pitfall? Ron, what about you? Is there a pitfall? Cars have never been that big of a challenge, but yeah, th- th- there are pitfalls. Um, for for me, probably in in my money management, it was probably being too aggressive, maybe in in investing and trying to you know hit that financial home run type thing. Yeah, I have to curb my enthusiasm. Curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. All right, that that's a good point. Um, anybody else? Now, I'm reading a book right now um, entitled The The Cheapskates Method of Retirement, all right? And one of the things that he says is that he's talked with people who are your age, Mr. Oliver, and he's talked with people your age, and he has said that those people have told all their family members to quit sending them gifts. If if I can't eat it or if I can't drink it, don't send it to me because it's it's just going to... Clutter up my house. I do that at my age. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, so, so there's an example, and we have a tendency to become hoarders, and stuff just fills up the house. So, so let's talk to a young person now, all right? Now, you've been sitting here and listening to me badger you about this. I keep using his, him as an example of a young person. So what is a pitfall in financial management that a young person might fall into. The danger of the Christian young person might face when, a, when, a, when dealing with financial management. I'm putting you on the spot here. Putting it off for too long. Before you, why when you invest your money and just using it up and enjoying your life while you have it? One of the illustrations I used the other day was I got a group of young employees at Southern Adventist University together, and I talked with them about planning. I said, why don't you listen to us when we talk about planning? And one of them said, Mr. Johnson, I just, got, I just left my parents' home. I've just figured out I have to buy my own tube of toothpaste. I have to pay my own utilities. I've never had to do that before. And you want to talk with me about long-term planning? And, and I think that's the pitfall that the young person on who thinks he's going to be healthy forever and thinks he's going to live forever, and he puts off financial planning. Does that make sense to you? Right? Anybody else? What is your pitfall? Maybe we should turn off the recorder while we admit our pitfalls here. No. All right, so those are some of the pitfalls. I have to think in my own mind. What are the dangers? What are the pitfalls? And I think the Bible is so clear about the danger of covetousness, of selfishness. Um, those are the, quite frankly, those are my pitfalls. So, uh, what are my financial goals? I think I have to start thinking through really what are my financial goals as I think long term. Um, I work with a retirement plan, that's my job. I look at a 30-year time horizon. So I have a different mindset. Ron, you work with um, 
the, the, the Oshkosh program every five years. So you have a five-year time horizon in your work, all right? I know an awful lot of conference officers, the Carolina Conference, is looking at next year's budget, all right? And so many of us as individuals are looking month to month. You, you understand what I'm saying? It seems to me that we need to settle in our mind that we need to start looking a little bit further down the road. Um, where do I want to be in homeowner's equity? Where do I want to be as far as managing my debt? Retirement assets. And one of the things that both Ed Reed and Dave Ramsey talk a lot about is having a three to six month emergency savings account. Why do you need a three to six month emergency savings account? What kind of emergency do you need this for? Any kind of emergency. Lose your roof? A, a, a health care catastrophe? Um, I have sat, I've gone to several Adventist institutions and sat down with older employees who have just lost their jobs. They're not yet 65, and yet I've had to sit down and talk with a 62-year-old about how they're going to bridge themselves across to age 65 because the organization just had to go through a RIF, a reduction in force. And these people are laid off. I just came back from one um, just a few months ago. Well, that's a tough conversation to have with them. You've got a three to six month emergency savings account, you may be able to get through that time frame. Otherwise, you're going to have a challenge. I've got to settle in my mind how do I show my gratitude to God and my love for my neighbor? What does the covenant relationship with the Lord mean to me? Not just in my day-to-day devotions, but from a financial planning perspective. What does it mean as far as what I will give, my relationship with other people? Um, This all has to be settled in, in the Christian's mind, I think, from a financial perspective. I have to decide, I have to make a decision. I am going to return an honest tithe, and I'm going to do it carefully, and I'm going to do it prudently. I, I will give you my personal, I, I tend to be um, very much a budget giver, all right? I decide how much I'm going to give at the beginning of the year, and I do it online. I don't put it into the offering plate. I do it online, and it goes right into the church, and I get the receipt at the end of the year, and it's just not that big a deal to me. It's just, it's, it, you know when it impacts me? is when I do my taxes, I do my taxes in March, and I've got all my forms, and I've got my receipts, and I pull that together, and I pull it together, and I say, wow, God must have really blessed me this year because I got through the year with no disasters, and I got along without that much money that I was able to give to the Lord. Um, I actually stop sometimes. You know, the middle of your taxes is not the normal time to stop and sing the doxology. I have done that. I have done that. I've stopped and cold in my uh, typing away and working away. And, and wow, thank you, Lord. I, I, I don't know. Have you ever felt that way when you do your taxes or when you look at the finances? Um, I, I just, th- that, that's a time to, with stunned amazement, 
say, somehow the Lord helped me get through this year and that amount of money, I didn't miss it. Could I have used it? Of course I could have, but I didn't miss it. And I'm so thankful to the Lord to have helped me to, to manage that. And, and I, th- I think that this is something that we have to settle in our minds as individuals. My model is not your model. You're, you've got to have your own model. So settle that in your mind. What is my attitude towards debt? One of the things we tell people who are approaching retirement, and our retirees tell us, and I'll bet you can preach this sermon for me. Our retirees tell us it's possible to live on Social Security and whatever modest pension you may have if you don't have debt in retirement. Our retirees that have debt in retirement, they're still paying a mortgage, car payments, they're the ones that struggle. They're the ones that suffer a loss in their standard of living in retirement. But I think it's more than just retirement. I think even the young guys among us, I'll I'll start pointing at her, okay? She's a young person too, all right? We have to look at what our attitudes are towards debt. Um, Ron can talk to us about this. Our students, debt is so easy to accumulate in college as a student. Is that right, Ron? They want to give you debt. And student debt is, as I mentioned, I think, yesterday, is one of the things that cannot be discharged by a bankruptcy decree. You still got to pay it, even if you file for bankruptcy. Right? So what is my attitude towards debt? It's awfully easy to say, pay it off. Yeah, but people really get themselves in a hole. So what is my attitude going to be towards debt now, while I still have wage income and I still have my my spending patterns in place, is this something I'm going to settle in, in my mind ahead of time? May I make a sure, please do. Uh, a member of our church years ago, a businessman, he said, nothing is too expensive if you have the cash. Yeah. Everything is too expensive if you don't. All right, I'm going to repeat that for the, um, for the tape. He had a church member that said, nothing is too expensive if you have the cash to pay for it. And everything is too expensive if you don't have the cash. In other words, you've got to put it on a credit card or something. Yeah, that's that's a fairly profound um, statement. Um, and, And yet our attitudes are what they are. How do I interpret the mandate in the spirit of prophecy and in scripture of a simple, modest lifestyle? What does that mean to me personally? You know, it's awfully easy to say, yeah, I live a simple life. I don't live in a mansion on the hilltop. Uh, I was sitting at the, uh, eating lunch today over at the building over looking out across the lake and I saw those homes on the far side of the lake. Now, I don't have one of those homes, all right? My home is very modest. But by comparison, my home is pretty nice compared to an awful lot of people's homes. It has three bedrooms. It has two bathrooms. I have two superannuated cars. If you look at the world population, I'm up about the top two percent. All right, there are an awful lot of people. If you have running water in your house, you are in the top two percent. Right? Sorry? If you have change in your pocket, you're up there in the top level. All right? 
And so how do I interpret the mandates of a simple and modest lifestyle? What does that mean to me personally? It might mean that I do not follow the advice that I was given that I told you about before when I moved to Maryland, and that is buy a house that I couldn't quite afford, max out. It may mean, why do that? Why would I stress myself by, by my budget, by doing that? Can I get along with less? Um, how else do you, settle, do, do you interpret the mandate of a simple lifestyle? Talk to me. What's a simple lifestyle? I, I, for me, I don't take, a long time ago, I quit taking any magazines. I took all quit taking magazines. magazines. No subscriptions to magazines. I didn't go out but once a week um, to eat. I fixed all my meals at home. I used to have so many magazines coming in, and um, my wife is reading one magazine now is in the car that came to our house two years ago. I said, why are you still reading that? She said, well, I just haven't read it yet. You know, maybe we don't need it if it takes us two years to get to it, around to it. Um, I'll still keep getting her that one, but she's been turning them off one after another. Um, it's, it, it's a valid point. You just fill up your life with stuff. Um, yeah. It just, and pretty soon you've got a magazine rack that's squeezed tight, and you don't even know what's in there anymore. What else? How do you simplify, Ron? You know, no, when my kids uh, first started uh, getting a, a, an, an enlarged allowance where they had to pay for their own clothes and entertainment and that kind of stuff, I introduced them to the concept of a thrift store. And a thrift they, store? Yes, and okay. how they could acquire good clothes at a reasonable price. Amen. And, you know... I, in certain respects, I was just trying to illustrate to them that you can achieve a simple, modest lifestyle. You're not shabby. You know, you, the clothes are still good. The other day, I was needing a pair of jeans. I told my wife, I'm going to go to Goodwill. Yeah. And I went to Goodwill, and I got myself a pair of name brand jeans that were perfectly brand new, $3.50. Now, <laughs> I'm at a point in my life, I could go spend 20 bucks, 50 bucks for a pair of jeans. Yep. But why? But why? <laughs> but why? So my son was at Mount Vernon Academy, and he went to the thrift store, but not to get cheap clothes, but to get clothes that looked like they came from the thrift store. The next year, Mount Vernon Academy put in their handbook, no thrift store look for students in their dress code. <laughs> so go to the thrift store for the right reason, Ron. That's right. That's right. Yes, Mr. Oliver. Sunday. Yes. And I'd say about 98% of the clothes we wear, what we got on today, yeah. came from the thrift store. All right. We serve the Lord once a week right there. Yep. That's right. And That's right. It's a good point. <laughs> Sorry? And I get I get the same things. I, yeah. I don't go sh for, uh, clothes shopping except for th th There are just so many ways that we can simplify and have a simple and modest lifestyle. It, it not only saves money, which it does, of course. It saves money. But it not only saves money, but it, it creates a mindset in your own mind, a thrift mindset. And that thrift mindset guides you um, as time goes by. I mean, every decision you make is more in the context of, of the thrift mindset. Um, in this book that I'm reading, The, the Cheapskate Retiree, he, he says... Um, Somebody that he was talking to 
was being razzed at work because he doesn't have cable. He's the only person in the office that doesn't have cable TV. And so they were razzing him. They were giving him a hard time. Why don't you have cable TV? So then he began asking them and discovered he's the only one that his house is paid for and he doesn't have a car debt and, and all of these things. And see, it's, that, it's the mindset, the thrift mindset. And so um, that, that is um, settle in your mind. How do I interpret the mandates of a simple and modest lifestyle? I really think one of the most important pieces is where are you going to live? What kind of a house are you going to live in? It makes such an incredible difference in your overall costs. Um, just when it comes down to property taxes. Property taxes alone and utilities for a big expensive house are a whole lot more than for a more modest home. Now, I, I told my wife the other day as we're thinking about retiring and thinking about a retirement home, I said, you know, they've got this program on television where they have these tiny houses, 150 square feet. Uh, I got, didn't get any traction with her on that one. She, she didn't want to live. And she said, that's no bigger than this motel room we're in right now. And I think, well, that is a little small, isn't it? So um, I don't know if that's the direction we're going to go. But um, you don't need, you know, if you don't need it, why burden yourself with it? You know what I think about Jacob in the Old Testament? When he left, he was home. When he left home, he was, he, he was homeless. He was penniless. I mean, he had virtually nothing. Am I right? All right. He got over there. They had the interactions with Laban and with, um, with everybody over there. And finally, he left there, and he was wealthy beyond belief. Do you remember what a burden it was to him? When his life was threatened by his brother Esau, he couldn't run. His flocks and herds created a cloud of dust in the sky that was a beacon for his brother Esau. And, and I think about that and I think, all right, how big are my flocks and herds? I don't have any livestock, but how, how big is my burden? And uh, it's something to think about. Settle in your mind. Am I in control of my budget? I'm sorry? You dare talk about automobiles and what people... Yeah, let's talk about automobiles. Back on the subject of, of modesty. Yeah. All right? Go ahead. Make, make a point about an automobile. Well, I mean, you, you can... At any of our churches, you see people driving in some really nice cars. Yep. Really nice and expensive. And, and, and we're not going to be judgmental about those people, right. are we? No, However, I don't need it. I, I just accept that. Boy, I sure would like to have that Camaro. I, I, I cannot get that out of my mind. You know, Lord, protect me from covetousness. And you're offending Sylvia. Sylvia is going to continue to do fine for me. Sylvia is my car. All right? Well, I wanted to ask you what it was. You said it was 20 years old, didn't you? Yeah, I've got a Dodge um, Stratus that, that is almost 20 years old. And I had to put a new motor in Sylvia. Um, not a new motor, a rebuilt motor. And... Okay. Um, She's doing just fine, a little bit of rust on the hood, a little bit of rust on one of the fenders, but Sylvia was doing fine, and I was happy with Sylvia until I saw this Camaro drive into the <laughs> church parking lot. So, um, no, I think the point you make, do you know where I buy cars exclusively? I buy cars from CarMax. That's where I buy my cars. And I know that I'm getting a car. I usually buy a car with 20, 25 to 35,000 miles on it. It's within warranty, um, usually within a modest warranty. And I know it's, it's been well cared for because they're usually fleet cars at CarMax. 
and then I drive it until it doesn't make sense to fix it any longer, and I give it away. Now, the last one I gave away, I, I sold back to CarMax for $250. It was worth more than that, but it was a hassle to get rid of it, so I just take it. I don't want it anymore. And so um, that, that's, that's how I do it. I have friends that are very good at negotiating car deals, and they buy cars that already have 100,000 miles on them. Uh, to me, I, I, I know I'm not that good at doing that. So, you know, again, you don't need fancy to be happy. I have a daughter-in-law who is a doctor. She's an animal doctor. And I keep telling her, there's going to come a day when you're going to be wealthy, and I expect you to pick me up at the airport when I fly in in a Jaguar. I want you to pick me up in a Jaguar. <laughs> she... <laughs> she just kind of shook her head at me and said, I'm probably not going to happen, Dad, and so um, I guess I'm not going to ride in a Jaguar. I was in Guam the other day, and there was a vendor that we were working with there, and he wanted to take several of us out to eat. He said, here, Dale, come ride with me. So I said, okay. So I went and got in his BMW, and it was not just one of the little BMWs. It was a big BMW. Folks, this is the island of Guam. The island is 30 miles long. It's five to eight miles wide. The highest speed limit is 35. And he has this luxury sports vehicle. He said, I know it's kind of silly, isn't it? And I said, I don't know. It sure feels comfortable back here in the back seat. I felt like I was um, being driven by a chauffeur in a limousine. But, you know, why, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we put the burden on the budget? I don't, I don't know. Am I in control of my budget? Doesn't it cost more to repair those cars, too? You know, I believe that that is true. I, I had a friend who said they, they had a, one of these cars, and they said they were just going to sell it. They said because it cost so much to repair them, too. I mean, they got a good deal on it, but it drained them when they had to fix them. Um, I think there's a lot of study that goes on to the repair and maintenance of vehicles. And um, some cars, sometimes it's not just the economic value of the vehicle, but I believe that, that you are correct. Luxury level cars, you just take it in to have um, routine maintenance done on them. It, it tends to be um, fairly expensive. So I would like to get on to the budget part here, all right? Do you have a budget? Do you stay with it? Now, when we talked about budget here the other day, one of the points that I made is I think that too many people try to get too specific with their budgets. And the budget's so detailed that we forget to keep up with it. I mean, you can go to Mint, you can go to other online services, they can help you with your budgeting, they can do certain amount of automatic um, by using your credit card. I mean, they, they, they look at your credit card charges and then they, they analyze that, say, okay, that was an automobile, that was a transportation, because it looks like a gas station. And, and so they, they, they do that automatically. Pretty cool stuff. Um, I have some privacy issues with that, and so I quit doing it. But I think what is more important is to look at the budget from the perspective of the hard expenses, the, the type of expenses you know you're going to have every month. And we talked about this the other day. The, the expenses such as your mortgage payment, your automobile expenses, um, taxes, healthcare, insurance, all of these things, you know you're going to have those, then what's left over, those are the soft expenses, and how you're going to manage those soft expenses, and how you're going to make the decisions. Do you have control of a budget? And how do you make your spending decisions? I know couples where the man is in charge, totally in charge. He makes all the decisions, 
and the wife has nothing in, in no decisions at all, no decision to be made. I have a very close friend who came home from a trip to Asia, had some kind of a terrible disease that he picked up over there, and he died. And it took his wife weeks to be able to get things opened up and figured out because he had all the passwords in his head. He couldn't get into her bank account. Into She couldn't get into the bank account. And, and so how do you make the decisions? Um, Adventist ministers? I have discovered a lot of Adventist ministers, when there is a question about parsonage allowance exclusion or other issues, it's the wife that calls my office. I, you know, I, you're a minister, so I don't know, you know what the situation is in your case, but it is the wife a lot of times is doing the taxes for Adventist ministers. And so, um, you know, I, I, how are decisions made? How are spending decisions made in your home? Are they done as a team? Is there a dictator? You kind of have to settle that in your mind, how that's going to work. Here's an example of the simple balance sheet. I think that this, when we look at budgeting, we look at our income and expense. Isn't that right? I mean, you look at budgeting, you say, how much is my income? How much is my expense going to be? Have you ever sat down and done a balance sheet? Um, in, corporate, in the corporate world, in the business world in which I operate, both statements are important, the income and expense and the balance sheet. You want to make sure that the company is liquid. You want to make sure the company um, is not over, over, in, over much in debt. So here is this person now. His assets and his liabilities. What he owns and what he owes. All right. So he's got cash. He's got a $5,000 account. His home is worth $300,000. His transportation, his old cars added together might equal $15,000. He's got investments in his 401k of $200,000. He's got total assets of $520,000. Have you ever sat down and just added up what the assets are? Now you come down here to what he owes. His mortgage is $150,000. His vehicle is $10,000. He still owes on his vehicle $10,000. Other um, liabilities, his credit card debt and so forth, another $10,000. Total liabilities of $170,000. That leaves him with net assets of the difference between 520 and 170 is $350,000. All right, so now this person looks at this and he says, this is where I am now. Where do I want to be five years from now? Where do I want to be 10 years from now? Have you ever done budgeting this way? I haven't until I actually sat down and looked at, at what Ed Reed talks about in his book, Faith and, Faith and Finance, which they have in the ABC, and I highly recommend, and he does not give me any royalties for making that advertisement. So you set a target, and so this person sets a target and says, $5,000 is too small an emergency account, a contingency account. It's not enough. And so he wants to build that up to $15,000. That still may be too small, but that's a start. The home... He doesn't plan on moving, so he's going to stay in the same home. Maybe the home will go up in value. Maybe it won't, um, but probably won't go down a whole lot. His transportation, he's probably going to have to get rid of one of his old cars before too long, so he's going to have to have some money to put into that asset. His investments, hopefully he keeps putting money into his 401K, his 403B, or his IRAs, and they will go up over time. Ultimately, he wants to get it up to $350,000. So he wants total assets of $685,000. Look at the liabilities. 
Look at his target for liabilities. He wants to have zero in liabilities. That's one of the things that our retirees repeatedly tell us. Get rid of your liabilities. Get rid of your mortgage. Get rid of your vehicle um, liabilities. One of the things that our retirees tell us is when you retire, have a new car and it's paid for. Now, I still think you can go to CarMax because that's a relatively new car. Let somebody else pay the depreciation. Ed Reed suggests that buying a new car, if you buy it at the right time of year and you know the cycle that the dealers are trying to get rid of cars on, you can actually buy a brand new car if you're willing to take, you know, for instance, this last year around Christmas time, I was looking at Nissans. There are Nissan dealers in the Maryland area, several of them. I rent Nissan Altimas. I rent them fairly frequently. I really like that car. It's a great car. So I started looking around. At Christmas time, nobody buys cars. These guys are trying to get rid of cars. So the 16 models were out, but they still had 15 models, and they were heavily discounting them. Now, it didn't matter. I didn't have the money to go and buy it, so I didn't buy a new car. But um, the point that Ed Reed makes in his book is you go and buy a, you can buy a new car if you do it right. You may be able to buy a brand new car and get enough of a discount that it's almost like buying a car that is used and somebody else has driven the first year on it. So this is what this individual is targeting. Do you think that this makes sense to not look just at an income and expense budget, but to also look at your balance sheet budget? And this does not require a degree in advanced calculus. This is not a hard thing to do. You know what your home is worth. If you don't, you can look it up on Zillow. There are no secrets. Go to Zillow.com. Look up your home. It'll tell you approximately what it is worth in your particular community. You can find out from your bank what your current debt is, your liability on the home. You know the rest of this information. So you put it here. You see the bad news, and then that helps you understand where do I want to go from here. Are there any questions about this? Does this make sense to you? Um, All right. We go back to the verse that we read um, at the beginning of the week. Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 30. And this is from the Message Bible. You have read this in other Bibles. Is there anyone here, Jesus said, who planning to build a new house doesn't first sit down and figure the cost so you know if you can complete it. If you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. Everyone passing by will poke fun at you. He started something, but he couldn't finish it. What a profound scriptural message for financial management. And what a mandate for planning, for planning, for financial planning. And so I look at this and I say, Isn't this stewardship? Isn't this part of the relationship that we have with the Lord? Isn't this the model that he has given to us to take the ability that we have, the strength that we have to be able to earn money and be able to figure out how to manage that during our lives? Let's talk about a few other things. Documentation. You know what a will is, don't you? I ate lunch up there in the little cafe 
um, in the main building around there, and right across from the cafe was a an office where the the conference has um, the trust services team in there working on estate planning and helping people come in and, and sit down and, and and prepare to have a will written. The conference will assist. I don't know what the what the assistance is. Will they do it free for for church members? They will do the um, the will and testament, last will and testament. Is that right? Okay. Okay. So that's a that's a great tool because you go and hire an attorney to do it and you're going to pay dollars to them and, and so make sure that that make sure that that particular piece is in place you remember what ellen white says she says and i forgot the exact words it was something about you're not going to die one day earlier by actually drawing a will by, by by having your estate plan in place that's a very important document but it's not the only document you know what an advanced directive is a living will. It's such an incredible document. I want to tell you about this. Um, I was traveling, and I got a call from my brother from Michigan. He, he was teaching at Andrews at the time, Ron. And so he called me, and he said, Mom has fallen, and she's in the hospital down here in Niles. And he said, I think she's had a stroke. She's non-responsive. So I got home as quickly as I could, got in my car, and drove across from Maryland to, um, to Michigan and um, went to the hospital, and, and mom was in what they call a, a chronic vegetative state, which is a horrible term. I don't know who came up with that term, but it's descriptive. I mean, she was non-responsive. And the doctor um, sat down with, with my brother and myself and our two wives and with my dad and, and said to us, um, your, your mom was in relatively good physical condition, but all of the scans that we've done, all the tests that we've done, we believe that she is not coming back. Her mind is not coming back. The damage was very extensive from the, from the, 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 the accident in her brain. And so they said, we need you to make a decision as a family. And this is one of the toughest decisions that any family makes. Can you imagine making this decision for a wife or a mother? We had to make that decision. And so um, they said, we can, we can put a feeding tube in. We can probably keep her alive for for maybe a few months. And I remember the Schiavo case in Florida. It was a horrible, horrible situation. So um, I asked my dad, I said, do you, do you and mom have advanced directives or living wills? And dad said, yeah, I think we did. When we had the wills drawn, we moved to Michigan. We had the advanced directives drawn. Um, the Union Trust Services office there at, um, in, in Berrien Springs did that. And so I said, let's go find it. We went and found the document, and we brought it back to the hospital, took it to the lady that handled social services there in the hospital. And she sat there across the desk, and she read through this document. And they're fairly lengthy documents. She read through the thing, and then she looked up, and she said, I see a lot of these documents, but she said, I have seldom seen one as thoroughly and as sensitively prepared as this one was. She said, who did this for your mother? And flipped around in the back, oh, I see it was the Seventh Adventist Church. I was very proud. The Seventh Adventist Church helped my parents. And it was very clear to us that my mom did not want her life to be prolonged should she be found in the case that described her exactly. And so it was very, very clear. So we took mom home, checked her out to hospice. The hospice nurses, I got to tell you, folks, they have, they have wings. You know, they're angels. They are marvelous people, hospice nurses. And they took care of mom. We took care of mom. And about four or five weeks later, um, with her family around, mom passed away. And we grieved her 
her loss, and we miss her even terribly to this day. But we knew we were doing exactly what she asked us to do should this event happen. What would we have done if she didn't have the advanced directive? I, I don't know what we would have done. You would feel guilty for pulling the plug, and you would feel uncertain about not unnecessarily extending her life. What do you do? I mean, have any of you faced a situation like that where you've had to make those kind of decisions? Um, I have twice. Because when we go forward 10 years, and my dad's health is starting to wind down. He's in a retirement center in Maryland now. And um, he's on Coumadin. You know what Coumadin is? Blood thinner, all right? You've got to keep that perfectly balanced. And he had got unbalanced. It was, his blood was too thin. He was in danger of bleeding out. And I'm traveling again. And so my wife calls me. She says, I'm taking dad to the hospital because the doctor says that he can't just eat spinach. You know, spinach is what they say. Eat spinach. It'll thicken up your blood. Um, well, that's really true. Um, but his, he was too far on the other side. So I have to go and have a K shot. So she took him to the emergency room. Well, emergency rooms have their rules. And I do not criticize them. But they said, oh, okay, Mr. Johnson, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And they were poking and prodding and taking blood and doing this and that. And they were planning, scheduling surgery. And they were, and my wife had the advanced directive with her. And she had to make a nuisance of herself, essentially jumping up and down until finally a doctor said, what is this piece of paper you're waving in my face? And she showed it to him. He read it. I said, okay, I understand and he checked my dad out to hospice, and a few days later, dad passed away. But the advance directive was in place, but it didn't work until somebody who understood it and had the authority to act on it and make a nuisance of herself did so, made it happen, and the advance directive worked. The reason I say this is if you have an advance directive, it's more important than just having the piece of paper in the file. It's more important that you have the conversation with your medical advocate and with your children and that they know where to find the document because they would have put that feeding tube in my mom had we not been able to move quickly. It's more important that you have that and it's an uncomfortable conversation you have with your kids. You know, I, my wife and I had ours drawn, and we had a conversation with, with Jeremy, our son. We said, you've got to understand this. This is what we want. We expect you to honor that request. And it takes the grief. It doesn't take the grief. It takes the guilt out of the decision. You said you've been through it, Ron, similar? Yeah. And one, one was a... does not remove the grief, but it does certainly help with the, the feeling that you have about making the right decision. Yeah. You're following their wishes, yeah. and they, they, they get the advice that they wanted. Yeah. I look back on the death of my parents, and I have no guilt, no second guessing, no question that we did the right thing at the right time for them because they're the ones that asked that it be done. 
right? Make sure that piece of paper, even when you're young, you need to have that piece in, my, in place. Do you know, I, I don't know if it's the case here, but if I go to the hospital to have a procedure in Maryland, just a simple in-hospital procedure, they want to know at, at admission, do you have an advanced directive? If you do not, would you like us to help you get one signed and witnessed here before you go into this? They want it to be in place. They want it to be in place. And you've got to understand that if you, even if you have an advanced directive, if 911 is called, if the emergency um, personnel respond, different states have different rules, but most of them are required to do life-saving, notwithstanding the fact that you have an advanced directive. It is not a silver bullet that solves all problems. And that was what the emergency room was doing for my dad. You know, that, and that was the conflict that was created there. But when you choose a medical advocate, which you're required to do when you do an advanced directive, you're required to choose a medical advocate that will speak for you. Make sure you get somebody who's stubborn <laughs> and willing to, to stand up for you and, and honor your request. In some cases, you may need additional, more complex legal documents, such as a trust document. I'm not a, an attorney. I'm not an expert in this area. Um, if, for instance, you have a disabled child, adult child, you know, I mean, somebody that's in their 40s or 50s and you're continuing to have to care for that child and so you've bought insurance and you want to make sure that that child is taken care of, you may want to have some trust documentation so that that child will be cared for should you be no longer around. Um, and, and, and there are other kinds, I, I'm trying to think of other kinds of situations where a trust might be valuable if you're, um, th there are certain tax protection devices that you can put in place if you have a fairly sizable estate or if you have a very large um, life insurance policy. Um, I was talking about this one time with a group of people and they say, well, no, you should not have a last will and testament. Instead, you should have um, uh, your own corporation, an LLC, a limited liability corporation. It will help you insert. I don't know about that. I, I, I don't even pretend to, to get into that. There are strategies out there, and if you have a complex estate, a large estate, disabled child, you may want to look at some other types of documents, and an attorney can certainly assist you with, with what makes sense for you. Yes, ma'am. Is advanced directive the same as a living will? I believe that in most states, those words are interchangeable. Yes, an advanced directive, a living will, it essentially is a document that describes various medical conditions you might find yourself in. Um, the, the simplest way to describe an advanced directive or a living will is your voice if you are not able to speak for yourself. You're still alive, but you're not able to speak for yourself. Does, does that answer your question, ma'am? Um, and, and here's a point. My dad had his advanced directive written in Michigan. When he moved to Maryland, we had a new one written for him. You cannot assume that a Michigan-written advanced directive will be honored in Maryland. If you go to the state's website, the, the Secretary of State of your particular state, we're, we're here in North Carolina. If this is your residence, you can go to the website of the state of North Carolina, and there's a, there's a website usually for the Secretary of State, and it will have a model of an advanced directive. That model is very precise, even to the font and certain words required to be bolded. And if the Maryland model doesn't meet that requirement, um, it may not be honored here in North Carolina. 
Now, if you're traveling and you have your, your residence is obviously there, then I, I'm sure that they, they work with you on the, on the thing. But um, th th that is what an advanced directive is. And it allows you to select somebody who will be your champion and your advocate. Choose that person very carefully. Heavens, you don't want them turning off the switch prematurely, you know, <laughs> pulling the plug prematurely. So um, make sure you choose that very carefully. Any other documents you can think of that I'm missing here? You know, obviously this third one here, the trust, is, is a very broad subject and can include many different types of documents. So. I've always heard that you should just go ahead and tap in and DNR on you. <laughs> Do not resuscitate? Yeah. <laughs> Horrible. Yeah. Um, do not resuscitate. DNR is 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 a statement that my situation is such. Don't come in and jump up and down on my chest. Don't shock me. Don't do those things. Um, if you find me in, in that kind of a situation, and you can request that, and that's separate from an advanced directive. When my dad lived in a retirement center, there was a red piece of paper that was pasted to the refrigerator door. And if he would be found in a, in a compromised situation, um, the, the EMTs were instructed to pull that and look at it and see if there were specific instructions, do not resuscitate. Because in, in many cases, you, that's not what you want. That's the last thing you want. Thank you. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, Ed Reed's book, Faith and Finance, draws an interesting pyramid, which I've replicated here. And that is, when you think about your will, and when you think about financial planning for really the long term, the long term financial plan, first of all, you, need to, you do need to protect yourself. I don't think the Lord expects us. You know, the, the example in the Bible of telling the rich young ruler to sell all of his goods and give to the poor, I, I, I think that that was a very specific situation, and, and that is not... Um, what, what God is asking us to do. God asks us, expects us to manage our finances. Faith and finance go together. And so Ed suggests the basement, the foundation of financial planning is to reach a point where you can take care of your liabilities, you can take care of your expenses, you can take care of, of yourself, your, your, the two of you usually, husband and wife. And you don't have to rely on your children Boy, the last thing I ever want is to have to call my children and say, I can't pay the mortgage. Can you help me? I, you just don't want that. And so protect yourself. And there are several texts in Proverbs that deal with exactly this subject, being able to take care of yourself. Then secondly, your family. Now, there are two different texts in Scripture that seem to argue with each other on this. One is 
I believe in Ecclesiastes where it talks about the foolishness of somebody receiving money that they have not worked for, such as a family member. But the other is, the wise is in Proverbs, it talks about the wise man hands money off to his children at his death. And, and so uh, it seems to me that taking care of our family in our legacy, managing um, so that you can assist family members is important, is important. Now the challenge is with life expectancies as they are today, what usually happens, you know, it, it is so easy for you to, to live into your 90s, you pass away and your adult children are in their 60s or 70s, and then you give them money. And, and they don't need it then. They've, they've probably established their, their own. So I don't know exactly how you deal with this. Maybe we need to start thinking of helping our grandchildren at that point. Um, and, and, but that's family. That's captured here in family. And so as you're thinking of planning, the foundation is financial independence. And I don't mean this in a, in a secular perspective as I don't need the Lord anymore. I'm all taken care of here. No, but in your financial planning, a prudent plan, financial independence, doing what you can to help your family, in contributing to money to your grandchildren's education account, those kinds of things, all right? But don't forget the spiritual legacy. Um, I, I remember the, the, the old story that floated around a few years ago, apocryphal, of course, of the very wealthy man that knew he was going to die. And he said to the Lord, Lord, I know I can't take it with me, but I want to take some of my wealth with me. And the Lord said, you can't take it to heaven. And he said, but Lord, please. And the Lord said, okay, I'll let you take enough that would fit in one small briefcase. So the man called in his investment consultants. They sold everything he had, and he bought gold bars. They put them in a briefcase. They were buried with him. Now, in a totally non-Adventist approach to um, life after death, he arrives at the pearly gates along with an innumerable company of the saints. He's the only one that's carrying a briefcase. And he comes up there and St. Peter comes out to the gate and says, whoa, 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 you can't come in here with that. How did you get here with that? He said, I have special dispensation. I have special permission. And they go back and check the heavenly computers, and one of the angels comes out and says, yeah, yeah, Mr. Jones was given permission to bring this. Well, before he can bring that into heaven, says Peter, we want to at least inspect it and see what it is. So the angels get down there, and they pop open this briefcase, and the sunlight from the eternal glory throne of God shines off those little gold bullion. And one of the angels looks up and says, you brought pavement to heaven? You know, isn't that a great story? You think about it, and you know, you, you remember the story of, of, of the, the old saint who was shown a beautiful mansion in heaven, and then the, um, the, the, the other saint that was there in heaven was given a very small hovel in heaven. And why the difference? Well, she sent us building materials. All through her life, she sent us building materials. She had her treasure in heaven. You seem to enjoy it there on earth, and that's all we could build with what you sent up here. Now, it's not that way. You know it's not that way. The, the mansions that we receive will be glorious beyond anything that we can think of, and they're going to be 
truly the grace of God. I mean, God's grace is what's going to give us that, that wonderful time in heaven. But part of the covenant relationship. This is part of our, our legacy, our spiritual legacy. Not only while we live here on this earth, but as we drop the documents, make sure that you don't forget those, those three pieces. And you can find them in Ed's book, and he spells them out. He fleshes them out a little bit more. So, so here's the financial services advisor. She's talking to the Adventist. She says, with your investments, you should enjoy a lifetime of financial security, providing you start drinking, smoking, and eating more fatty foods. All right? I want to talk a little bit about health care. Health care is, is, is really a challenge for us in this country. And the Affordable Care Act has not solved it, um, not by any stretch. When you reach retirement age, now we've got a couple of retirees here, they can talk to us about this. Isn't Medicare enough? Retirees incur expenditures not covered by Medicare, such as outpatient prescription drugs. Almost every year, I have at least one retiree that spends over $100,000 on outpatient prescription drugs. Every year, at least one, and many times more than one. Dental vision hearing, you're going to pay that out of your pocket. Medicare in 2016, you pay 20% as an outpatient copay after you have paid the first $166. Well, you look at that, you say, okay, I can probably manage that. Whoa, maybe you can. But if you are hospitalized, you will pay the first $1,288 as an admission deductible. Then Medicare pays the rest. If you're hospitalized three times, you might have to pay that amount three times. If you're an inpatient and are very sick, for very, this doesn't happen often, but on day 61 of being hospitalized, you start paying $322 a day. Right? So this is Medicare. You can see some of the other numbers. Um, the bottom line... The literature that I have read indicates that most retirees have to think in terms of having a couple, husband and wife, thinking in terms of having to spend approximately $250,000 during their retirement on their share of medical expenses. And so when you think of planning for retirement and you think of your health situation, you know, I'm pretty good health. I don't run marathons, but I walked around the lake out here. I can get around. My mobility is good. My health is good. I'm not taking a lot of meds. Um, but again, remember, the go-go years, the slow-go years, and the no-go years. All right? And there will come a time when you'll start spending money. And so when you think about financial planning for the long term, it's not just a matter of maintaining your standard of living. It's a matter of recognition of some of these expenses which will be incurred over time. I want to talk for a minute about if you have a 401k account, if you have a lump sum account that you have been accumulating, or a 403b, 401a, any one of those accounts, you don't need $100,000 when you retire. What you need is a stream of funds that will pay your bills for the rest of your life. It's, it's not the lump sum that does you any good. It's the stream of funds. A lot of Americans have done a pretty good job of socking money aside, but when it comes to protecting themselves with a stream of funds to pay for the rest of their life, they don't know how to go about it. And so here is an example. The, the word is annuity, and here's how it can work. This is a do-it-yourself annuity. Okay? This individual had $100,000. 
he decides he's going to take $400 a month out of his account, and he's going to protect himself from inflation every year. So he's going to increase that by 2.5%. So the first year it's $400 a month, and then it increases. All right, so if he's got his $100,000 and he's investing it at about 5%, which is a challenge but should be manageable over time, he's actually going to get this growth in time and then it begins to come down. Now his normal life expectancy is about here, about 83 and a half, 84 years of age. When you reach age 65, your normal life expectancy is about age 83, um, 84 years of age. And so he crosses his normal life expectancy and he's still got quite a bit of money in the account. He's doing pretty good, all right? But then it begins to come down as that inflation begins to bite. And it comes down, and at 100 years of age, the money is coming down, is coming down really fast. All right? He's probably in pretty good shape right? because it's unlikely he's going to live that long. Now, this particular person has the same $100,000, invested the same way, and says he wants to take $500 a month out. So he takes the $500 out and immediately, and inflation protects himself, immediately begins to come down. At age 83, 84, there's still money in the account, but it's rapidly dropping. He still continues to live. The money drops down here. At about age 90, he, he's still alive, and the money has been depleted. It is gone. Now, at age 90, he may not care that the money is gone. He may not know that the money is gone. But somebody is going to know and somebody is going to care. His account is depleted. Right? And so this difference between life expectancy and actual how long you live is what we in the industry call longevity risk. It's just a very simple term. You don't know how long you're going to live. We don't. You stand about a one in four chance of living into your 90s. You folks are well on your way. Congratulations. So, um, you know, my dad passed at, at 92. My mom died at, at 83, the normal, retire, normal death age for people who reached age 65. And so you don't know how long you're going to live. Well, I'm happy to tell you there are companies that will be happy to take that longevity risk off of your shoulders and put it on their shoulders. And they're called life insurance companies. And they will sell certificates of annuity. But you have to understand what these things are. If I go to you and you're selling annuities, they're called SPIAs, Single Premium Immediate Annuity. I come to you and I, I say, I, I want to buy an annuity. Here's my $100,000. She takes $100,000. What does she give to me in return? Nothing but a promise. The $100,000 now belongs to her. She has given me a promise that her company will pay me X number of dollars for the rest of my life as long as I live. I was at Hughley Hospital in Texas a few years ago. One of my relatives was having a procedure. I was waiting in the waiting room there, and they were selling annuities. The hospital takes your $100,000, promises to pay you for the rest of your life. All right? If they've done their arithmetic right, when you pass away, there's still some money left, and they use that to pay off some debt that they had when they built whatever project they were raising money for. All right? It's a great product. Works well for the hospital. It's a well-run hospital. I have no problem giving him my $100,000. But the challenge is, is that if I have a heart attack in Texas, take me on up the highway to Fort Worth. Don't stop at Hughley Hospital because it's not in their best interest that I survive the event. All right? Now, I, I, you know, they, they, they don't consider that, I'm, I hope. I'm sure they don't. But see, it's, it's this issue here. And you know what? Adventists don't buy annuities. They don't like them. They don't like them. And the fear is, is that I come in here and 
I buy the annuity from you. I walk out of your office and my wife and I walk out on the sidewalk. A big truck comes up on the sidewalk and kills us both. What just happened to the $100,000 that I gave to you? It's gone. It's gone. Which should make you think when insurance companies drive trucks. You know, you've got to worry about stuff like this, don't you? <laughs> All right? Okay. But here is how you need to think about this. Here, here's how you need to think about annuities. I actually am, am a proponent of guaranteed income for the rest of your life because I think it's too easy for people to run out of money, particularly if they live for a very long period of time. And so here's how you think about this. It's not that she got my $100,000. There's a vast number of people, all right? These are all annuities. This is how annuitization works. So you take a vast number of people, and what we're going to do here is we're going to, we're going to say you're a vast number of people. I'm going to draw the line right here. Okay, Ron and Mr. Oliver, you're on this side with these folks. You're all on the other side. You're a vast number of people. Now, arithmetically, half of you are going to live longer than average, and half of you are going to live shorter than average. All right, so this group on this side, you know, I'm sorry, guys, you're going to die just a little bit early. All right? This group over here, you're going to live a little beyond the normal life expectancy. Who gets to use the money that you won't need because you died early? All right, I want you folks to turn and say thank you to these people over here, all right? You, you understand? This is how annuities work. There's a pool of risk with this large number of people, and it's not a bad thing at all. And there are some remarkable new products that are coming out today because... When I give you the $100,000, I've lost control of the money. And that's why Adventists don't like these things. They say, it's not good stewardship. I turned over my control of my money to the insurance company. The Lord helped me earn that money. I need to somehow take, keep control of that money. And so Adventists don't buy these things. There are some products that are available. I don't have much here about them. They're called GLWBs, Guaranteed Lifetime Benef Withdrawal Benefit Plans. And they are annuity products, but they allow you to continue to control the asset itself. And it guarantees a lifetime product. So if, if you want to write down the word GLWB, that's, that's, a, that's a term. You can look that up. You can Google that. You can discover it. There's another reason that a lot of Adventists don't want to buy these things, and that is they, they have fees. There are significant fees. The person who sells you, if you sell me an annuity, you're probably going to walk away with about 3% of my money as a commission, right? That seems like an awful lot to pay as a commission. The service the person is providing is significant, but 3% out of my $100,000 seems like a pretty steep amount. And so annuities have high fees, and you lose control of the money. You lose control of the money. And you're totally reliant on the strength of the company. I'm not going to, I'm sorry, I quit point, keep pointing oh, at you. Okay. But I, I used her as, a, as an illustration of a broker. And her company better be able to stand up and pay this 30 years from now, 20 years from now, when I outlive my normal life expectancy. Okay? So annuities are great pools, great tools and great pools. But you have to understand what they are and you have to understand the expenses uh, we talk with retirees about where are you going to live in retirement. We've seen way too many retirees chase their children. Have you ever thought about that, chasing your children? Um, chasing your children, you know, you chased them all the time. They were little kids. 
And then when you retire, you chase your children. My parents retired where my sister lived. My sister moved. My parents moved. My sister moved again. My parents moved again. One of them said, you've got to quit moving. We've got to stay put somewhere. We're tired of moving. And, and so then my sister passed away in a tragic drowning accident. So my parents moved to be near my brother. Then my brother moved. So my parents, you know, it, retirees say, choose a good home that's close to good health care. Maybe you have some roots there. Proximity to children is important. Um, one of the things that we found out, though, yeah, there you are. Good example right here. But one of the things you find out is that so many retirees have a dream retirement home. And, and you know, I've thought about this. Thought, oh, man, this, this is what I have in mind for my dream retirement home. I have talked to many retirees who built or bought their dream home and then were forced to move from it for some reason in a very few years, and they discovered that the market did not consider it to be the dream home. The standard rules having to do with the purchase of real estate all apply to your retirement home. Right? Very, very important. There's good material out there. It's available. I am finished. The time is finished here. I have other things I can chat about and talk about. Re advice from retirees. We had one retiree tell us, don't buy too much land around your house. One of our retirees said that he had a company come in and plant a thousand fruit trees on his retirement property. Boy, he hadn't been there more than a few months. He said, what have I done to myself? This is hard work, right? Don't be foolish when it comes to your retirement home, where you're going to live. Debt management, our retirees tell us all kinds of good things. Any questions about anything I've talked about? Has this made any sense to you today? Um, have I missed anything? Are there any gaps here? Anything that I should have talked about, I should have covered? Any comments you want to make? Then I'm, yeah, Ron. Just one uh, comment on annuities. I, the thing I like about an annuity, it not only gives you, if you structure it right, it'll give you that income from life for life. It will also take away from you the risks of investment of that money. A lot of people don't want that responsibility. They don't know enough about investing. And you've transferred the investment risk to the insurance company or the company writing the annuity. A way of getting around the commissions is to do what is called a charitable gift annuity yeah. with a church partner. Yep. And for those that don't understand that, in return for you giving a some amount of money to a church partner, you will receive that monthly income. And at the end of the day, uh, if there's money left, the remainder of the funds go to that charitable entity. And you even get a tax break when you do it. That's the right. charitable gift annuity actually provides an upfront tax break for you. Now, it's a great tool. I worked, I worked at Andrews for over 20 years, and we kind of facetiously tell people, if you want to live forever, yeah. give a charitable gift annuity to Andrews, because yeah. there's never money left at the end of the day. <laughs> it's not true. It just felt yeah. that way being a financial administrator. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, th these are very good vehicles for people. To do. Yep. So you, is this like... like uh, it is written or created in the yep. church. Any church that's that's partner. I had thought of looking into that yep. at the time and yes. just wondered yep. about it. The one thing that you cannot do or that you should not try to do, and that is if you have a 403B or a 401K in a tax-deferred account, 
that doesn't work, what you're describing. Don't take that money and try to buy a charitable gift annuity right. because they're not the same tax structure. One is a pre-tax, the other is an after-tax. The, the way to do that is not very tax efficient, and our lawyers just shake their heads and said, don't encourage people to do that. But if your savings account is an after-tax account, it's not a, an IRA or 403B or something, then the purchase of a church charitable gift annuity is a marvelous product because the Lord has blessed you with the ability to earn. The Lord has blessed you with the ability to grow your, your assets. And then you can bless the church while they are taking good care of you. I'm 63. I turn 65. I still think I'm going to be able to continue to manage my investments. When I'm 75, I probably shouldn't be trying to manage my investments. And the point you make is a valid one. All right. Thank you, Ron. How, how do they work? How does a charitable gift annuity yeah, work? Like you do that for like it is written or faith for today. You contact that company, you contact okay. the, the organization, Faith for Today, and you say, I want to talk with somebody who can talk with me about a charitable gift annuity. Use, use those terms. They, they will know what you're talking about. They will put you in touch with somebody who may actually come to your home and visit you or will get on the phone with you, and they will talk about, they, they, will, they will go through the process very carefully because they want to make sure that you understand what you're doing. You know, they, they don't want your kids coming back and suing them later on and they, right. because they bullied you into doing something. So they will go through the process, and then basically you're going to make a donation. Uh, it's, it's not, it's, you're going to purchase a charitable gift annuity, and the money will go to them, and then they promise you a monthly amount for the rest of your life. You sign the documents. Yes, sir? Jeff Bloomberg is the guy with faith for day. I mean, it is written. Jeff Bloomberg. All right. Real nice guy to talk to. Come down. Okay. And so you've been through that process. Oh, yes, yes. Is it an onerous process? No. It's not, it's not, not pages and pages no. and pages of documentation, no. right? Very in straightforward. House, they said this for an hour maybe? Yep. Most? Yep. That was it? Yep. And so by doing that, you know that you have a guaranteed lifetime of income. Yes. And you also know that probably there's a pretty good chance that when you don't need it anymore, the church is going to be blessed. Yes with what you have it's done. the last survivor. It yep. the last survivor. Yep. All right. One thing you didn't touch here, 20 years or so ago, I read an editorial in one of my dental magazines, and it was, I'm retired. And of course, 20 years ago, oh, I read it. This dentist, he chose, he was 80-some years old. He chose to go to the office three days a week. I get up every morning, do exactly what I want to do. Yep. And that's the position I'm in right now. But you read these things, People that are active in their retirement years live longer. They're in better health. That is correct. And I quit practicing in March, but I'm still there in the dental lab. It's a practice that I started in 1959. Wow. And I sold the practice in 1988. Yep. But I was privileged to work there until right now. In our very first day, our, our presentation on Monday, there was a doctor that was sitting down in the, con in the audience, and he said some of the unhappiest people I have known are people who retired too early and they did not have a reason to get up in the morning. So I think the point that you make is a very valid one. Have something to do. And this is what I struggle with because I'm retiring at the end of this year. I'm, I'm finishing up. I'm going to work part-time for the church, but I'm, I'm wrapping it up at the end of this year. And I have no life. So do as I Say, not as I do. Have something to do when you retire. I have something to do. I go to the office three or four days a week yeah. right now. I yep. spend time there. And I have a friend that's in, uh, in construction. Mm -hmm. He has his own company. And 
he's 67 years old. He's scared to death. What in the world am I going to do yep. when I can't get up on the ladder? Yep. And he's, so, no, have a purpose in life and continue you, on. You, you must have a purpose in life. Today, there's been studies that have repeatedly been done about today's boomers that are approaching retirement. And so many of them, um, are, some of them are saying, I, I really don't plan on retiring. I'm just going to keep on doing what I do. Others are saying, I'm going to wind down a little bit, sort of like what I'm looking at. I want to get out of administration. I'm tired of the burden of administration. I'm going to wind down. But there is a whole bunch of people that are basically looking at reinventing themselves finding something different to do than they've ever done before. I'm going to earn a real estate license. I'm going to see if I can sell houses in retirement. You know, th those kinds of things. So I, your point, doctor, is very, very... Stay busy. Yep. I had an 89-year-old man come in one day to have his teeth cleaned. And I found a couple of things that need to be done. He says, can you do them right now? I said, no. I said, I have no faith. He got upset. Because he golfed six days a week. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, he had a schedule, 89 years old. 89. And wow. I had another 91-year-old man just three or four years ago, shook his fingers. He said, says, you know, he says, there's a law in Polk County. As long as you're moving, they won't bury you. <laughs> thank you for coming. Those of you that have been with me all week long, I thank you. Thank you for the ones that came in today. Um, it's been a, preparing this material has been an interesting exercise for me. It's helped me review my own situation and remind myself um, that it's awfully easy to stand up here and preach about something. Um, it's another thing entirely to actually go back to the budget and actually make it happen. And so um, I ask the Lord's blessings to be on you as you think about, particularly you folks in your semi-retirement years, um, and some of the rest of us as we look and the young people look way over the horizon in the future. The Lord is going to come someday, and we're going to walk on streets of gold. And I have a feeling that in heaven we're going to keep very busy. I, I really think we are. You probably won't be doing dental work, but you're going to be kept very, very busy. All right? Um, I've talked with scientists who have said, when I get to heaven, I can't imagine not having something exciting to do with the tools and resources that will be available to me in heaven. And, and I think, what an incredible... I will no longer be helping people prepare for retirement because heaven is going to go on forever and ever and ever. I've got to find something else to do in heaven. But I look forward to that time, and I think all of us do with all of our hearts. Jesus is going to come. But in the meantime, he asks us to prepare. He asks us to plan, and a prudent plan is what we need to have in place. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us today. I thank you for your guidance. I thank you, Lord, for safekeeping. And, Lord, we pray that you will teach us to plan prudently. I pray that you will teach us unselfishness and generosity with others. I pray that you will teach us to learn to love Jesus more every day. In his name we pray. Amen. Have an outstanding